Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Aaron Coultate and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Resident Advisor. When Danny and Kieran Clancy began putting on Crank Brother parties, they did so with no long-term vision. It was simply about getting some friends down to Corsica Studios for a dance. Ten years on, they're among the key players in London's electronic music scene. Later this month, they'll launch Retextured, a four-day festival of techno and experimental music that embraces London's brutalist architecture, with a lineup that includes the likes of Nina Kravitz, Shackleton and Lucretia Dold. It marks a new era for Crank Brother, one that began to crystallise when the duo sold their restaurant in East London to focus their energies on music. This coincided with the decision to book more experimental acts, like Midori Dakata, Tangerine Dream and William Basinski, to sit alongside their parties with big DJs like the Black Madonna and Helena Hauf. It's a move they say reflects their own changing tastes in music. When they stopped by our London office, Danny and Kieran were still a few weeks out from the first night of Retextured. Our chat touched not only on the intensity of putting together a festival, but also wider talking points that'll be of interest to anyone putting on parties for a hobby or for a living. Things like corporate investment, ever-rising DJ fees, and the delicate business of working with local councils. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The Exchange with Crank Brother is up next. starting your own festival this year, launching it uh, in about a month's time. It's called Retextured. How much work has gone into this thing already? Um, it's been a lot of work and a long, long time in the making because it's something that Kieran and I have wanted to do for many years and not really had the confidence in whether we thought London would be the right place to do it. And uh, I think there was a moment um, last May where we had uh, William Bozinski playing in Union Chapel uh, to maybe like 700 people and it's an uh, unlicensed bit church so there's no alcohol and and there was a moment where Kieran and I were sat there and there's 700 people there watching him play a crazy ambient piece about the, the cosmos and it kind of just reassured us that the scene was there in London to do something more abstract and something more interesting and push the boundaries a little bit uh, just on account of William Zinski having 700 people there, because I mean, I love him, I love him, but I think he still is pretty niche in wider circles. So that was kind of the starting point for the festival, and then from there it just kind of evolved pretty quickly. Once we kind of had the idea of 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 where we wanted to go musically, then it was like ad- adding in the light and the production element. Something we felt strongly across 10 years is that often the lighting and visual guys don't get much of a look in or, or the praise that they should do they're some of the industry's unsung heroes whereas you know everyone likes the photo of the dj with his hands up whereas actually there's a lot of other people in the industry that put a lot of art into into the events so we wanted to put some light on them and celebrate them and and then the last thing is is also to celebrate some of london's architecture like particularly the brutalist buildings and the industrial buildings and explore the the relationship between sound uh and light within within those buildings so we've 
we're using six different venues and four of them are Brutalist buildings, two of them are very industrial, so they've got a very strong aesthetic which lends itself to the type of music programming we've done, which is ambient, drone, uh, techno and everything in between. And I think it's just going to be really interesting to to take the club experience to a slightly different place to what we've been doing for the previous 10 years. Initially, when we were thinking about the show, we'd have loved to have found sort of, a, you know, just like a massive five, 6,000 capacity industrial kind of brutalist building that we had a 6am license on. Um, but, it's, you know, there just isn't such a place um, within London. So, you know, we sort of then started talking about, could, could we do this across several venues, but all across one weekend? And then, and then the just ball started rolling in terms of the programming, and and it actually has allowed us to go far more interesting, exciting in terms of the way we program each event. Because you know you have very up and coming artists that are kind of headlining the shows, whereas if we had this all on on one festival stage, you know you you just can't really give as much attention to like the smaller up and coming artists. You kind of just by nature of the fact that you've only got a couple of stages, you kind of have to have just massive artists that sell loads of tickets so you can sort of see the way we've curated the artist program it's kind of it's quite we we like to think it's fairly democratic really there's a lot of artists at a similar level on there and not many of the traditional kind of festival headliners that you're seeing a lot in london just sort of over and over again at various different events you mentioned that you've got six venues that you're using mm. um, in different council areas across London. Um, what kind of logistical challenges does that present versus just having one big venue? I mean, a lot. I mean, you know, it means you need six production managers, six event managers. You need six of everything, whereas if it's in one space, you can consolidate it. Um, and as you say, we're working with lots of different you know, local authorities and but you know, most of it is predominantly east. We, we everyone's been very supportive so far. We you know they weren't the only six buildings we looked at. We did look at other bu- other buildings who weren't so supportive, or the local authorities who, who didn't quite understand what we were trying to do. So I mean, hopefully, once we're out year one, we might be able to expand the the venues that we're using. It, I mean, it, I'm not gonna lie; it's definitely made it harder for us not having it in one venue. But I do, we also were quite adamant that that we didn't want that to be a prohibitive reason for not doing a festival like this in London, you know? So, you know, I think I think we're going to get through it and 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 learn a lot from kind of doing six different venues and I'm, I'm glad we've got 10 years of experience of doing events um before we would ever approach doing something like this. I think the issue with I mean there are big buildings out there, um you know, like Printworks, Tobacco Docks, there there are, it is possible to license a massive capacity venue, but they they're sort of tending to to license them on pub hours now. So that you know, you just really can't get anything later than ten thirty, eleven o'clock, um, and that's the we've that's the problem we've encountered with with councils. They don't want to give anything later than eleven o'clock. And we we when we looked at the kind of benefit between the two, we just thought we'd, we'd rather actually have proper club shows that go on till four o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, than than just find a massive venue and have to close at ten o'clock. It just didn't seem to fit the profile of the music we were trying to push for to be there at you know three yeah. o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And some of it's pretty hardcore industrial techno and drone and it, I don't know it's not not really Saturday afternoon stuff <laughs> no I, mean, I think you know you can, you approach music a, a different way the at the different time of the day that you or night that you're listening to it and I think it's much nicer to listen to Surgeon at 5am than 5pm <laughs> it's hard to argue with that <laughs> yeah in terms of you, you've kind of touched on already um perhaps some of the things that will separate retextured from the other festivals currently happening in London 
But when you decided, right, we're going to do a festival and you looked at the other events that are already kind of in the calendar, um, what kind of discussions did you have in terms of how you were going to, I guess, um, fill a gap in the market or create something that was uh, unique? I, I, mean, I think first and foremost was like the program musically. Uh, a lot of the, of the programming in London and the UK and, and even in Europe is the same headliners rolled out on the same top of the bill on a million festivals. And, and we wanted to make sure that that wasn't this. Um, so whilst we've got some big acts, we've got a lot of smaller acts and, and, and you know, we always bill alphabetically demographic we're not hanging our hat on and one artist you know and and we tried to make the the bills really varied and interesting so and mix up the set times as well so you know you're getting different set times when you might not expect so like you know, a really underexposed artist might get you know a thousand people watching them uh, which they wouldn't usually get it was also you know being able to push a bit more a bit more live electronic music often when we look at sort of festivals across europe there's just so little live electronic music compared to, to you know when you, when you see someone like the big indie festivals there's you know there's obviously tons but a lot it's so DJ led really across most of the festivals so it was just giving an opportunity for some of the live artists I mean traditionally you see live electronic music um, in London in, in sort of the, the Barbican and the South Bank Centre and you don't tend to get it outside there that much um, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, there's a good, good point. What Kieran says there is that there's lots of artists that've been playing the Barbican, the South Bank, which is seated. Yeah, and it's nice to see Alvinoto maybe standing once. You know, artists of that ilk are actually more in a more club environment because a, a large part of his music is is quite clubby. Um, so that was a, a, another a big consideration for us. Feels like you know, last year you guys made um, quite a noticeable change, I guess, away from focusing purely on club shows to embracing more live electronic music. So what are the kind of economic challenges of you know putting on Tangerine Dream or Maturi Takata somewhere like the Union Chapel versus um, you know throwing a party with five or six DJs at Corsica Studios? We, we've had to sort of find a point of difference as a promoter, I think. You know, we've been, we, we're, we're sort of 10 years in now, we're still a super small team. There's only three of us in the office and then we tend to work with a lot of kind of sort of self-employed people that, we, that we've used over the last 10 years. But we're a super small team and when you're competing against like, you know, big corporate-owned promoters now in, in massive venues, we've, you know, we really sort of looked at where we wanted the last, the next five years to go at the beginning of 2018 and said what's going to be our point of difference as a, as a, as a small independent promoter and in you know and in, and in in that conversation was like let's only book stuff that we really really believe in let's be completely true to our values um let's not just book the sort of ticket smasher guaranteed artists and let's just try and be sort of what we believe is kind of totally authentic and credible in our approach um and I, retextured was was all about that kind of ethos really yeah i think we always we, we wanted to, to be considered you know like not just promoters but also creators that's why we've always called ourselves you know our events have always been crank brother presents we don't you know sit behind labels or or things it's yeah you know, it's very much what we believe in and what we're trying to introduce people to and, and celebrate that that music is out there and and bring it to in a live format to the to the city. So, yeah, that was that was the kind of point of difference that we wanted to make. And as pr promoters whose um, bread and butter has been um, in putting on club shows for a, for a decade or so, how do you feel about the relationship between festivals, um, say in London, and and club shows? Is there an uneasy relationship there? 
I mean, there doesn't have to be. I think if everyone uh, is quite open book and, and talks to one another, I think, um, and you know, we 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 like to do that wherever possible. I mean, undoubtedly, it's made it harder for for nightclubs with the the amount of festivals and and the amount of fees that are kind of going. But I mean, I, I think equally, I, don't, I think nothing more than property prices has made it. Yeah difficult to own a nightclub at this at this point you know if you look at small venues closing you know festivals obviously create a challenge and and the and the massive indoor venues you've you've got at the moment printworks tobacco docks you know they, they make it super challenging to own a kind of 500 capacity club but it's the it's the it's the landlords that have created yeah the, the biggest problems you know five yearly rent reviews and it's just when, when you have venue you know in, in berlin that you have such cheap rent that it, it's quite a realistic business model to have a venue open two nights a week for six hours i mean you're talking about being open for maybe 20 hours a week out of all the hours in the week and that, that you can actually do that but in london it's just i mean it, any nightclub really here doubles up as a corporate venue during the week <laughs> then you know yeah. they do photo shoots they do everything um Depressingly, I think that's still the number one challenge, really, for a club. Yeah, it's just, think, it's, yeah. it's just the, the property price in London. Do you think that explains the dearth of mid-sized venues in London at the moment? It feels like maybe the, you either go big with like a Printworks or a Tobacco Dock, or it's you know small and very intimate and maybe less risk. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a hundred percent what it is. And and you know, I think Printworks, are, you know, a big part of their business model is that during the week they can have loads of kind of big corporate shows that you wouldn't even be aware of and they have you know live music shows during the week but you know i think a big part of their model is to is to put in you know like a big car show and they have all kinds of stuff in there which makes it work as a venue but you just when you're five six hundred capacity you can't you just don't really have that as an option so you've got to make it work across friday and saturday night and it's just we've looked at it you know we've looked at open a nightclub and people always ask us what you know but it just it doesn't. I, I can't. I, I look at it, and every time we've considered it, it just it, it looks very difficult. I mean, we we owned a restaurant um, before for for uh, five years, and that was another case in point of just we were open eighteen hours a day, and the just rent was so expensive that you know you just got to fill almost like every hour to make it viable and 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 then even after that you know uh, the blood sweat and tears you put in it you know the the landlord still came to us and and they double your rent and you know their reaction if you say well i can't afford that as an independent business is like well find some we'll find someone that will and i think that's yeah the real issue in london at the moment um but you know as kind of each area gentrifies and rolls on you know the original independents and creators move out and then the more corporate moves in it just seems to keep rolling at the moment so yeah you mentioned um property prices and gentrification as you know the number one um issue facing club owners and promoters in london where do uh you know, DJ fees stand. I was actually re- rereading um, Angus Finlayson's piece that he wrote for us a couple of years ago called The Promoter's Dilemma. And one of the key themes in that piece um, was that DJ fees were pricing out a lot of promoters. Does that chime with your experience? I mean, sometimes I think we've got, uh, we've always been pretty good at just not paying the fee when we don't think it's fair. Uh, but, uh, and, and it would be great if all the promoters sat on the same page and did that. I think you know when we when you've been in it for long enough, you know when someone quotes a, a silly fee, I just don't think there's any long termism in it. I mean, particularly, I, I always enjoy working with some of the older agents who've been around for a long time and they've seen how artists peak and dip. So they don't, 
you know, just try and like every year whack a couple of thousand on and, and you know, it's all good, you know, because they see that there's longevity and any, anyone who wants to be in this career for a long time, there's got to be fairness and relationships built. And, 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 you know, DJs or live artists, you know, they just don't keep going up, you know, they'll, you know, they might have an album, they might drop off for a couple of years. And I think, you know, an intelligent agent will, will respect and understand that. It's definitely, I mean, it's definitely got pretty silly at the kind of top, top end the last kind of five years or so. I mean, I think that those kind of 200 acts that you see across the headline stages, you know, and all the major European festivals, those DJs are earning more and more every year and the fees are getting, are increasing. But I mean, I think what's a bit of a shame is that like the, the sort of mid-tier or lower-tier DJs that might be trying to do kind of like a gig every two weekends or in the summer a gig every week like their their fees aren't particularly increasing and there's such a reliance from on, there's such a reliance on sort of booking these big acts to sort of shift through your tickets yeah that, um, it's almost people put the, the big act and they put all their budget on that and then they put a tiny bit of budget for the freshest newest thing coming through and then all the tears in the middle are kind of forgotten about which can have really detrimental. There is uh, quite a lot of un unfairness in there in DJ yeah. fees. I'd definitely say. I mean, sometimes I look at our own P and Ls and I, I think, look what the headline is getting and the, what the opener is getting, and it's not, yeah, it's not fair. <laughs> does it help to maybe build longer term relationships with with artists? Um, does that build like an element of trust and keep the fees reasonable? Yeah, we, we definitely have we definitely have that with with several artists and 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 their management in particular that you know they. They know that we're going to promote their shows for the next couple of years, and there's there's a bit of bit of a give and take, and so, so you know, yeah, definitely some agents more than others take a, a really considered view. But there, I mean, there are some agents out there that don't take that view, and they just want to be paid twenty percent more each year, and they'll go to whichever promoter will yeah. will sort of. But on just on a you know on a personal level, when you've been doing it for ten years, and 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 you're promoting the shows and going to the same shows. You know, you want to have the relationship with the DJ. You want to go out for dinner with them beforehand and, and, and have a nice chat and, and know a bit more about them and understand them because, you know, otherwise it can get quite tiring, you know. And and so for, for us, you know, we really try and build that relationship with artists and, and, and book the same artists regularly. And, and if we have bad experiences with booking agents or artists, we usually feed back on that and don't book them again. I mean, one thing I I, I have actually raised this with an agent in the past is that there's only one group of people that pay for increased DJ fees and it's the customers, you know? So if you just expect the fees to go up every year, all that happens is the ticket prices go up every year. And is it reasonable for, for someone that's like 22 living in London where rents are increasing every year, wages are stagnant, you know, there's a completely uncertain economic outlook. Is it reasonable that ticket prices have to be, you know, kind of, 25 30% more than they were 2 years ago you know it's kind of that is ultimately who pays for it it's not particularly even you know the, the, the promoters and venues definitely take on more risk but ultimately it's uh, it's customers that have to pay more so i you know I, I do try and relay that sometimes that ultimately it's the fans that that pay the price will the bubble burst i mean yeah i hope so i, I think you know certain acts will fall off i mean you know, there's obviously big corporations buying up smaller promoters, so that that hasn't helped um, in London, um, and they're putting you know big money into it, and and so the kind of small independent model that that Kira and I run is is becoming rarer, and and lots of the smaller independent 
uh, promoters have found it hard to compete as well and have, and have fallen away. So, I mean, will the bubble burst? I, I mean, I hope so, and I, and I definitely hope it's going to slow down, but I, I don't see like a, a, a catastrophic burst happening. I think there might be a slowdown and then... But but at, at the moment, for, for me, like the appetite for like festivals and and live is very strong in London and the UK. People want to that experience, and they want and they want to go out there, and they, and and people seem to be. I mean, that's a positive thing for the scene. People want to they they want to go to events, and they, they they probably don't go out in the same way that we did when we were younger, which was like every Friday and Saturday we'd be in a club. That was just what. We they did. seem to want, yeah. We're, we're noticing they seem to want the big show now. So they might not, you know, they might have four or five weeks where they don't go out and they kind of they're more health conscious and they want to get better sleep and exercise. But then when they do go out, they want to go out big. So they want to see, you know, six eight headliners and. Um, so as a result, have, that's slightly so, driving the the fees as well. Yeah, because we, I mean, uh, when we first, I mean, we we've grown up in London our whole lives and. And have been like seen many different stages of of the London clubbing scene, but for us when we were, I mean, we never knew who was playing most of the time. We were just going to a club because we like the club, we like the community, like there'd be people there that you know you'd see every week, you'd hang out with, you know, you go and and, and I just don't, I don't know. I, I know there's some small communities in London still that exist, but that on a, a across the capital doesn't happen as much as it used to, and I think you know. I mean, it's been well documented all the different factors that are playing into it, like social media and mm. uh, and things like that, of what what people want for, as an experience. Um, so I think those things all drive the fees as well. You know, it's, there's many different parts playing into it. We can't just scapegoat greedy agents. <laughs> I want to pick up on your own sort of histories with um, the London party scene soon, but before that, I wanted to um, sort of discuss a bit more what you were saying about corporate investment in in promoters and it's a sort of an observable trend i guess also with festivals in europe with you know private investment firms um, buying you know significant stakes in in festivals is this something that worries you um as a small lean independent operation i mean maybe worries and excites me in the same capacity like i can see very negative things and very positive things out of it i mean i think it excites me how vibrant the live scene is. It, it you know, excites me whether I, I don't necessarily agree with it that more people have to tour because they don't make as much money from their records anymore. But you know, so the, there's a downside for the artist, but the upside for the, you know for the supporter is you get you know people tour a lot more than they used to. So you know, and I think so. The live scene for me is really healthy and fresh at the moment, which is great. Like, I mean. Okay. when I was growing up there was like one festival to go to you go to Glastonbury you know and the, the, now there's just like every year there's just more and more and, and, and more and more like interesting stuff that, that's popping up so you know if, you, if you're a music fan I think it's pretty exciting time to engage in, in, in the live scene but I just hope that lots of people maintain like maintain independence independently so they don't get compromised in in their programming and and their production and their values because you know the the moment you you kind of look at these big corporations then there's these big kind of deals where like the that festival acts playing across five different you know festivals and it just doesn't help diversity of programming at all because they're doing these large deals for different artists and it's across yeah multiple cities and yeah. venues you know so it can become you know really difficult for sort of local independent promoters to actually have a chance of booking 
certain acts. Could you shine some light on how those kind of um, those deals work? Well, you might have, you know, one of the big uh, corporate-owned festivals to sort of make an offer for a headline show in, in London, but say, you know, as well as that, we'll give you headline shows in every major UK city. And, and then we'll and also, a couple of festivals. We'll put you on a few festivals in Europe as well that we own. Um, so, you know, are you really going to go and play for you know, Crank Brothers' new festival when I'm gonna, essentially going to give you four festivals and six venues, none of which you're really big enough to be doing, but because you've got the weight of us behind you and our marketing spend and our just like kind of, you know, our size, you know, that you, you just don't really have an option. So it is, you know, that there's definitely a monopoly, sort of a bit of a monopoly element to it that is, it, can, it definitely is challenging to be an independent promoter. It's also something we're really, really proud of because we, we can just make decisions our, ourselves, you know, our business decisions and our creative decisions are usually just just us like walking down the street having you know on the way to have lunch and we'll make some decision that then might result in an amazing show or or a great concept so we're not really beholden to anyone um which we really really enjoy but yeah definitely, definitely is challenging yeah but i mean from from challenge uh, from those challenges you know good things tend to come and i think you know when kieran talks about our point of difference we want to, you know, we really kind of looked at it last year and we were just like, I want to push new music, you know, and we want to push new artists and, and new labels and, and, and new things that were interesting because we don't feel that lots of people are doing that. And, you know, there's some amazing pro promoters in the UK and outside the UK that really focus on that. And, you know, I mean, like Mantle is a great example. Like, you know, every year, they go, they go more left, and and it sells quicker, which is which is amazing for them because people are trusting in their curation and their and their brand, and and, and it's amazing for all the artists that they're bringing through, and places like a tonal, but it's like a tonal as well. Um, and I think you know I I just like to see more of that really because there's you know it, it's, it's amazing at the moment great, that so many... they've really won the trust of kind of you know European festival goers, you yeah. know Detmantel. They they were far more you know, headline based about five years ago. If you look at Deck Mantel kind of 2014, it's, you know, it doesn't look super cutting edge, but you look at this year's lineup and you just think they've sort of won the trust of their community now and people just know that it's going to be an immaculate musical programme, which is the quite, that's quite an inspiring place to be, I think. Yeah, I think, yeah. And anytime you can go to a festival and not be so bothered about who's billing and just wander around and listen to great music and, and you know, and have your mind blown in various ways is can only be a positive thing rather than like, oh look who it is again, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's that's really something that we're striving for. So that all said, if if someone came to knocked on your door in twelve months' time with some hedge fund millions and wanted to get involved with with Crank Brother, would that in any way be tempting for you, or is it just that's not of interest? It's not something we really thought of, you know. It's just Kieran and and I at the moment, and our assistant. And um, the only way we'd ever, I guess, take any funding on as an independent is is if we wanted to do something, you know, something significant that we, that I could that we could use funds for. If you know, if we wanted to take a festival and do, try and do something that you know, that I mean, one of the downsides were having an independent business is we don't have access to funds. So like the, the funds that we, we have are oh, just the funds that we make everything's self-financed so you know even doing like retextured it is you know it's very it's tough like there's 14 shows there's a lot of bills to pay and and you know 
so that's one element that you know I can see why why independents go for it. You know, it's it's not it's not easy being a promoter as as is well documented. So a lot of time, if you've got a bit of financial support, it can it can really assist you in in some of your decisions. But it's just making sure that those decision that assistance helps your decisions in a positive way. So taking it back a decade, um, tell me a bit about how you got into throwing parties and, and what that first year or so was like for you. We we sort of it 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 sort of happened very slowly really. We we were doing nowhere near the amount of shows that we're doing now, obviously. But we, we both we both had normal jobs and we started doing kind of parties but probably three or four times a year for friends, you know, we're hundred hundred people, hundred and fifty people. Yeah. Down in Corsica Studios actually. Corsica Studios we're living living in Elephant Castle and Corsica Studios was Half art, art gallery, half club. Then they just had that little main room bit. Yeah, but it was tight. It was tiny, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was chaos. You know, it was just like yeah, anyone could come. It was like anyone who could DJ could DJ. We'd have a mate playing drum and bass, and yeah, then the next no, guy would play a bit of techno. Yeah, and it was just like <laughs> and uh, but it was up maybe after like two years. There was never any intention of doing it full time or anything. I, I think like often like the things that happen organically can be the best. Is that just maybe after a couple of years we were like, this is pretty fun actually, and and maybe we should try doing it in some other venues and and try doing some different stuff and and uh, and and actually booking some artists, and not just having our mates play. <laughs> because so there, was, there was probably even sort of five. We always kind of thought it would fizzle out after four or five years. I mean, it was only I never really thought it would be what we did sort of forever. You know, because it, it, it just felt so in, intangible. It's not really, you know, I don't think many people when they're growing up, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? A promoter. They might say, I want to be a DJ or like, I want to, I love, want to be involved in dance music, but they probably don't think of being a promoter. So, like, we were really into it because we were both DJing and we loved, and it was like, I mean, it was basically a way for us to actually have a gig. You know, that's how yeah. so many promoters each speak to. Why did you start promoting? Because I want to have a gig. So you'd basically, you'd have to put on a party and then people would listen to your DJ, you know. So that, like, you know, you generally like, so many promoters you speak to, they're, they're, I mean, so many DJs I speak to now, they started out as promoters because they wanted, you know, they wanted to, like, build a bit of a scene around, around their, around them and their community and then and then it kind of kicked on for them um but it just happened very organically really yeah yeah which was really nice yeah not huge there was no master plan at all still isn't (laughs) (laughs) and what was the the club scene like generally and for you guys um in 2009 2010 it felt i mean it felt very different to the way it feels now you know there was there was loads of uh warehouse space in east london um really easy to get i mean everything was on what's called a temporary event notice which is kind of a a a temporary license for 500 people and it was really quite easy to get on venues that were never meant to be nightclubs you know so as long as it had you know a couple of fire exits and and uh and some power you could basically do an event there Um, it's kind of the era of the tba east london warehouse exactly it it was great mother over and secret sundays and and then us a little bit after those guys you know just doing kind of you know, just throwing a pair of speakers and a red park hand into it, a warehouse. Yeah, it felt super positive as well, though, because it was on the back of, like, you know, the loads of clubs closing, Bagley's, all the King's Cross ones. You know, so suddenly, like, loads of places were, that we'd cut our teeth in that we loved were just gone, you know, the King's Cross, three clubs at once, gone. Um, and places, so... And then, you know, like, a few promoters started popping up doing warehouse parties, and, and people were excited about it, and... 
uh, and it was yeah it, it, for me it was like really one of the, my favorite times of clubbing in, in in London which you know we've now been going to clubs in London for 20 years so I can now think, I'm now old enough to look at different periods of, of clubbing in London and, and and think what some of the most exciting were I mean they were pretty loose as well like the parties just the that everyone was doing like you know you wouldn't get away with that stuff now like and there was an amateurism to like all of the promoters parties which was pretty refreshing and like they were pretty raw and just like minimal production and like the, the power used to go out like five times and yeah i remember that was a thing at our events so, so often like the music would cut out and you'd get it back on then it would cut out again you know that hasn't happened in years <laughs> yeah it's the point where it would always cut out a few times so it wasn't even yeah. frowned upon but it was kind of you almost miss it sometimes because <laughs> the vibe when it comes back on is really <laughs> yeah that pretty, cheer yeah it's yeah. pretty special and i mean and just some of that like uh there was so much space then. I think that was that was what was really interesting. There were just like all these old buildings in South and, and East London that had been sat there, not being used for March, and and then people realised that they could make a few quid on them, on the weekend by renting them out. And it, it was, was yeah, it was generally wasn't it that some some bloke would usually find a, a warehouse that was being developed in like four or five years time. So this is like kind of ten ten years ago. So like two thousand and nine, I think. There were loads of buildings that like were a bit earmarked to be developed in five years. So some bloke would kind of find it and he'd pay minimal rent on it and he'd just put in like kind of fifteen or twenty raves a year. So like every other Saturday or something, he'd have a different promoter putting kind of six hundred, seven hundred. But he wouldn't really do much else with that venue. It would just be there were loads of them in Hackney Wick and all down Curtain Road, Great Eastern Street. There were What were your favourite sort of scrappy um, semi-legal venues back then. There's this guy called Ranks who's he's still kicking about in Shoreditch. He's a bit of a legend, and he's 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 he had like two or three. Yeah, he had a nice photographic studio, which was pretty awesome. I I also like for five years had a venue called Factory Seven. That was really which good. was like it was a really interesting building. It was an old stables that, that you know still had all the rings and and cobbled cobblestones from where the horses used to be kept at just on the edge of this the city of london and then you know it, it was actually basically being used for a city boys car park when when i came across it and you know it was just full of porsches and and we managed to persuade the landlord to give us the lease on it and they were going to redevelop it in four or five years um it's exactly that story wasn't exactly it? that story the kieran was just telling me it was meaning me and then <laughs> and then but we did you know some Totally some great shows in great there. shows in there and it was just it, it was just amazing because it was just a really raw space but it had loads of history and like you could i mean the sound was just you could you could pound it out it was kind of like, one one neighbor it was, was one neighbor that didn't like it and then <laughs> it had, what, he's probably still still around it's a skyscraper now isn't it it's a sky yeah it's sad it's sad well i mean actually sadly but also quite good is when they there was always a rumor that shakespeare's original first theater was was built nearby which is why Curtain Road is called Curtain Road and you know part of the big development plans was they were gonna uh the you know the the developer had to pay and build a Shakespeare theatre nearby as part of this huge development when they knocked down our beloved warehouse and they started to take out the floor they found out that Shakespeare's theatre was not actually on Curtain Road and they found it underneath our warehouse so they they then had to change all of their development plans so our beloved warehouse spot has not been built on and they they're now uncovering all, and it's still got all the original flooring all the seating from Shakespeare's first theatre so I was quite pleased at that I was like yeah there you go we've been raving on top of Shakespeare's first theatre so for the doing? last five years is it becoming like a 
visitor center. We're going to visitor center, yeah, yeah. And they're going to have all the original dress circle and everything. Can maybe throw some parties in there. Yeah, that, that, that would be, be good, good wouldn't it? That would be good. I mean, I mean, that is always the nice thing about London. Like, you know, there's so much history there that it's... It's interesting. And with the experience in, that you guys have had as DJs, promoters, party goers for a, for a couple of decades all told now, what are the essential ingredients for a good party? For I mean, we always, uh, you know, we've always just thought the venue is the most important thing for for any event, whether it's indoor or outdoor. And that's always like in 10 years of doing parties, when we first started doing them, we, we, we always used to say we'll never do a show in a bad venue. Um, and that, you know, goes down to like you've got to have great sound quality, you've got to have decent acoustics, but just a, just an interesting venue. Like we've just we've never really used the kind of standard club locations. Not that I mean, I've, every now and again when I go to one, when I actually go to a purpose built nightclub, I, I love it. You know, and I, I love how sort of well put together they are. But I, 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 we always love just going to events in interesting venues. You know, it keeps it interesting for us as well. Obviously purpose-built club have you know weeks and months to tweak systems to get everything working and operating perfectly whereas we have like the day before we go in and you know we make our plans and and then you try and execute it and like and you know the sound the lights the flow the bars everything try and make it work as well as possible which is is, i mean it's challenging but nothing beats the location does it you know when you think about like you know, Robot Heart of Burning Man or, I don't know, Barbarella's in uh, in Croatia or, uh, you know, Panorama Bar. Like, it's all it's, it's all about, for me, it's all about the building or the or the, or the, 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 the sort of location that you're in. That's what kind of creates the... And I think it's probably what's been, like, the the most important thing to us gaining a following was, was the fact that we were always keen on finding new venues and, and, and using them, so... We did loads of roof parties, street parties, and we've just done like we've used venues that lots of people couldn't or wouldn't, or and and as a result, you know, you kind of have those magical moments where that don't occur sometimes when you're in a basement with uh, with four walls. I mean, they do often, but you know, there's something very special sometimes about being outdoor. We do lots of outdoor shows, and there's something very special about being outdoors in London and, and, and still listening to that sort of music and, and it's great. You mentioned outdoor shows. I, I guess the street parties that you guys um, have thrown in Shoreditch have become a bit of a flagship event for, for Crank Brother. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how those are put together? And it feels like it must be a bit of a challenge working with Hackney Council on something like that as they don't have the best rep in nightlife circles. Well, I mean, actually, you know, I think Hackney have, you know, they're they're getting quite tricky now in the last couple of years. But I mean, I think they've done, I think they have actually done a lot for nightlife in the last ten years. They 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 did license a lot of venues and they gave out a lot of a lot of late night licenses. I think the issue is now they've started to they've started to listen to local residents too much and they've started to tighten the screw massively. But you know, they've been. We've worked very, very closely with Hackney Council, obviously, for these street parties, and we've done. I think we've done seven years now. I think they'll be the eighth. I thought maybe the seventh year is 2019 that we've done the street parties, and it's a it's a massive challenge. Um, every year I kind of say to Dan, "This is the this is the last year we're going to get this over the line with the council." You know, it's um, you know, you know, a couple of years ago this massive Montcalm hotel opened really nearby, and they just you know, they just they don't like the street parties, believe it or not. They've got a rooftop with like 300 people like sitting kind of around a swimming pool, and there's an outdoor restaurant and. The sound bleed up there is horrific. I mean, it literally 
you can hear every part of the music and so you know they, they just weren't there until until like 18 months ago and, yeah. and 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 now they complain constantly but you know you have to be able to convince the council that we're a culturally important event that's been going for several years and i think that's the thing now that stands to us that we've done seven years of these events and we've never you know we've never had any anti-social behavior we've never had sort of tons and tons of complaints you know there's there's lots of different things that that that, that make it possible i mean it but it's a it's a hell of a lot of work it's a, as soon as i've kind of got the two street parties out of the way i start working on the next year again sort of almost immediately so i sort of end up spending the first half of the year kind of licensing everything and then the next half of the year sort of delivering them so it's um but they yeah they nothing beats them really that i mean pretty I'm magic. Sh- they're pretty amazing like that i still every, every time we're like that it's at capacity and uh, we have the headliner come and i just think i'm a I can't believe we're doing this. This is just, I always. I, I'm always worried the police are going to turn up and shut it down. And they do normally turn up and say, "What the hell is this?" And I, and I say, "Well, we've got a license," and and they, but they've never heard anything about it. Like there seems to be no real communication going back and forth. Like they've they've been at all the licensing meetings, but when it actually gets down to like the guys on the beat that day, they they know nothing about it, and they just can't really believe, like I can't, that it's possible. You mentioned having to kind of fight your corner for the um, cultural importance of, of the events that you put on. Do you think there's a um, changing view in in London among sort of local authorities and law enforcement about the cultural importance of well, electronic certain, music? Certain events? boroughs are fantastic for it, you know, but they they have they have you have to hammer it home to them. And I think I think it's it's really important that that the cultural significance of these events is recognized because otherwise if you just have like a nanny state situation like that i mean this the way things are going in like australia at the moment it's just licensing has become a nightmare everything's getting shut down and and you just think and they they just don't have any view that they're culturally important events over there and if it you know certain boroughs we work with are absolutely fantastic We're, we're doing quite a lot in this venue in walthamstow at the moment and London Borough of Waltham Forest, they they remind me of what Hackney were like ten years ago. Yeah, like, they're, they're very desperate to do events, yeah. and they, you know everything I suggest. They're like, yeah, that's a great idea, and you know I had to get a two-hour extension for retextured on this big venue, and they, they've never done an event till four a.m. in the venue before. But you know they they signed it off because they were like, this this is great. You know we've got all, you know we've got Nina Kravitz playing in Walthamstow, who, who who thought that was possible. It's just I'm, I'm, I suppose you know Hackney were quite progressive when we first started working with them ten years ago, but you know that then a lot of venues and and, and nightclubs and, and and legal raves like we were just talking about uh, you know opened and at the same time that they're having lots of their funding slashed so there's even you know there's even a part of me that you know sympathizes with, with the, some of the ones that are more progressive because it's it's very difficult for them to, you know to actually be complete supportive i think there needs it's hard for the the guys that deal in the licensing department to to really make the decisions like something needs to come more from you know from Sadiq or or from the London nightlife mayor rather than you know from the the little guys at Hackney council because they're just getting inundated with the requests and stuff and they're getting hammered by the local residents and and, and there needs to be policy in place that actually recognizes the cultural significance of this so it's not about you know the battle between the promoters the residents and the licensing there's actually something higher up that says like 
yeah, this is one of the things that created what what we're in now is happening in East London is is electronic music. It's one of the first and foremost things that's important to this borough, probably more than like any other borough in 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 London. I'd almost say like East London, you know, it's one of the most. It was it's had points where it's been like the clogging capital of Europe or the world, and and it's been so important. And and to you know recently just to to ignore that history, it, it's just really saddening. And you look at somewhere like Berlin and where they really understand, you know, the, the economic impact of having a positive clubbing scene and the, and they support it. And rather than just, you know, hammering the cl- nightclubs that, you know, that the recent news article that they actually funded venues to have, you know, sound treatment in. So it didn't disturb the neighbours. Like there is a happy point, like, you know, promoters, clubs, we don't want to piss off the residents and the residents would far far rather find a, a in an amiable way to work with us and we've we've worked with residents loads before mm. you know it's part and parcel of it and and there is usually a, a solution point to get to with some not always all of them but lots of them but there needs to be support from the right places and and i think like a, a lot needs to come from the mayor and, and and the nightlife mayor for me a lot more than is happening at the moment do you think the uh, establishment of nightmare has been successful i, I think it's a step in the right direction she, I, I, to, to be honest, I don't. I don't know an awful lot about what plans are in place with her. But I mean, I, I think I. I was excited when the position was advertised, and when the when you know, I, I think it, the fact that it's even being engaged with is is a step in the right direction. I mean, I one one thing I would say is that you know, it is a concern that you know more could be done and more focus could could be concentrated on actually cultural significance of nightlife we're not the you know we're certainly not in the worst situation compared to a lot of european capitals i mean dublin I'd, i've tried to do street parties in dublin you know just because we're we're irish originally and we, we went to college there and stuff i mean they just pretty much laugh at me when i try and do street street parts they're like hang on why what that why would we allow you to do that and when i speak to dublin I know, we know quite a few dublin promoters and they just have nightmares you can't get anything licensed over there that's not in a nightclub you know you've got they just do the same nightclubs over and over again. It's historical licenses. You can't really get anything past two a.m. So you know it's a challenge in London, but it's 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 not it's not the worst. You know, they're, they're, and, and like somewhere like Berlin, I think Barcelona actually is quite progressive thinking as well. Like that, you know, that they're sort of more the gold standard. But um, so yeah, we're, we're, it's it's a challenge, but we're not in the worst situation. I try and keep a bit of perspective sometimes because we, there is a bit of progressivism in, yeah. in London. I mean, London's such a large city that like impacts of things can disappear. Like you know, when you go to Sonar in Barcelona, you can see the impact of that festival. You know, it's everywhere. Every single person you meet across that week is going there. Whether it's like the person in the shop, it's like your waiter that's serving you. Like they're all going to Sonar for something, and everyone's talking about Sonar. The, the taxi drivers, like it takes over the city. And London is so vast that nothing ever takes takes over the city like whether it be a, a, a music event a, a sports event uh, and that certainly makes it harder because you know i think in in a smaller city like the the cultural importance of of dance music and east london would would really have resonated further in a smaller city but you know, in west london half of them don't even know what Hackney is so they don't give a shit you know so i think that that needs to always be you know remembered so you know, the, the nightmare is a new thing. It needs to be felt out. It needs to be engaged in all uh, areas of, of live music. Um, 
and 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 a nightlife economy and i think you know it's, it's not just about there's more to nightlife economy than just clubbing as well of course so i think it's a step in the right direction and i think you know i'd like to see that there'd be some more legislative power that they actually have to enforce things and and more active conversations before decisions are made like with hackney where i don't think there was enough engagement um with with the nightlife mayor before that happened you know and and then it just suddenly happened it was done decided you know and i think that was a real shame there's a there's a lot of power at kind of like local council level and i think that's what people don't quite realize is that people are looking at it like it's a london issue but you, you know this most of the power is kind of delegated on a council by council basis so it's you know Sadiq khan can come out and make quite st- sweeping statements about about you know aspirational statements about how they can affect change but essentially pretty much all the power on, on licensing which is really what we're talking about in terms of getting more festivals through getting better hours for nightclubs getting better hours for like late night bars that's all decided at local council level it's not something kind of that's is centrally kind of decided in any way so it's kind of it's quite this challenging job for the night's arts because she's kind of essentially got to get into every single different different borough from the outside, looking at Crank Brothers' progression over the past 10 years seems to be like quite steady, um, sort of sensible growth to the reach the point where you are now. I'm going to assume, though, there's been some bumps in the road along the way. How many kind of nightmarish promoter scenarios have you uh, dealt with? I mean, a lot. The, probably the, the, the most challenging time was when we had our restaurant at the same time as promoting because, you know, we had... A, you know a, a big restaurant and and bar with you know 30 odd full-time staff and and that was sucking up most of our hours every week you know like the the one thing we've always been really interested and in, enjoyed is is food you know as well as music so i'm very passionate about it and and we put everything into that and 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 sometimes crank brother played second seat and, and and that was quite tough to like you know balance it as well as actually having some life yeah we ran crane brother we had like a our office was behind the kitchen in our restaurant for like five years so like we and it was only ever us on crane brother it was just us too so you know we'd be like trying to organize a massive event and then like the head chef would come in and start asking us a load of questions about the menu and then he'd go and then we'd like be back on the phone to the venue it was just how long were you juggling those two things for for like five and a half years yeah like including the it was probably longer actually because we spent about two years kind of preparing towards opening the restaurant you know getting the license for that and finding the finding the building and then we had it for five years so so probably like seven years or something yeah Um, at what point did you decide enough is enough well so about like so last christmas we decided to sell the restaurant and uh well maybe it was put midway through 2017 actually and then to actually kind of sell it we sold it to a pub group um and uh you know who've got like 18 venues so it was just a, sort of another venue for them and uh yeah so we sold it and just decided to put everything into into crime brother um at the beginning of 2018 and it's been it, it makes a lot more sense now yeah it's really nice to, to be doing it. one thing yeah and just do one thing really well and i think there's been periods in our lives probably where we've just tried to take too much on and overstretch yourself and something falls into that, like, yeah, that looks great, let's do it. And that is one of the good things about being in London, there's opportunities and stuff happening, but it's really nice to be able to do one thing, really concentrate, do it well. And but we've kind of, been, we're very, very sort of hands-on. So like, I mean, I think we only used a production manager for the first time in 2018. So like I've produced every single show 
that we've done. I've never never actually got in like a professional production manager that's done hundreds of festivals. I've always just done it myself. I didn't even know people did it particularly until I I've just always done it, you know, and, and then done we've just always done the event management ourselves and done all the compliance documents ourselves and you know, booked everything a single supplier. Like we've just always yeah, it's just all we've just always done. But things get missed okay. the old time. You turn oh, yeah. up. Did you book the medic or did you book the? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where's the bar? Yeah, or something. Uh, and you know, but it it, it that oh, was yeah, we, we had an event shut down by the police about five years ago um, because of an issue with the license. You know, like which was probably part part of part of that that we were just fairly disorganised and that. I mean, that was that probably the worst thing that's ever happened during. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the worst moment in 10 years. Like a thousand people in the venue just starting to boot off. Nothing or carnival. Please close it down because licensing issues. I mean, literally going onto the stage with the mic and being like, sorry, you've got to go home. And yeah. then we had to refund all the ticket holders. We had, you know, we had to call Gerd Janssen and, and, and uh, Kink and be like, yeah, no, don't come. It's like, you know, don't get in your cab. The party's been shut down. When you went up on the stage to kind of announce the end of the party to the crowd, what was going through your I'm mind? I'm pretty sure I, I made Luke Solomon do it, who was <laughs> DJing at the time. That <laughs> was too spineless. I think that was one of those moments where you just want the kind of ground to swallow you up. And then, but you know, it's the way you kind of bounce back from those things. And, and, and we looked at that and, and oh, well, we refunded I, we actually, everyone. The yeah, next we just day. said, like, we need to just refund absolutely everyone. And then a few people, like probably 50 people emailed and says, I want, and want you to refund my cabs. And we actually refunded a lot of people's yeah, travel. Just, you know, like, we took a massive financial hit. And it was a. I think we lost was, 20 grand, you know, fucking ruined us for ages. We were in a big mess financially yeah. for, for like six months a year. Like, we, you know, we were at the bottom of our overdraft. and but we just took a call like let's just actually do the decent thing promoters actually some you know they like there's quite a long history of promoters not not uh you know not kind of fronting up and funding people when they have a disaster so we we just did that and and that that's the way you can kind of like get your get out of a disastrous situation with your with your reputation intact you know and you guys have also sort of there was a, a booking agency that you had at some point yeah yeah and i tried that for a bit you've you know obviously you've mentioned the restaurant you've, yeah. you've dj'd um you've had a label you've made music where does all of these kind of other activities um where do they all sort of sit for you now or is the have you really sort of got tunnel vision and focusing on um putting on events yeah i mean i think that's it. that that really is the main focus at the moment is just putting on events you know we're still djing at our own at our own shows and and predominantly warming up which we both love and setting the kind of tone for the party, um, and then we've just got way more shows on, like generally. So it's, you know, it's hard to even take sh gigs because we've got shows on. I think we've got another weekend. We've kind of got fifteen shows now between now and the end of March. So it's yeah. and there's as we said, we're a super small team. There's and well, it's just three of us in the office, including us two. So it's uh, yeah, it's all hands on deck just to to deliver really good good events, basically. Yeah, promote, promoting is. Is the main thing. I think just, there comes a point where I, I just we looked at our lives. Kieran had two kids as well, which also had more complications. We're like, Jesus, our lives are really complicated. Like, why have we just why have we done this to ourselves? Like, you don't. I I'm just seeing all these like you know people with much simpler lives and and envying them. And then even though I'm doing what I love, but you know I've just taken too much stuff on. I'm being pulled in too many different directions and. 
and then it's so we just like we stripped back what we were doing and we there was quite a bit of soul searching when we sold the restaurant we were like you know where does our where does our passion really lie like what do we want to commit to like is it music or or is it food and there there's an overlap in that you know but you know they're very different industries and and to do both well is is not possible so there was quite a lot of soul searching when we decided that you know like no, we really believe in Cramp Brother and we believe, you know, this is an opportunity now if we sell the restaurant to take it in a different direction. And that's when we started booking some live. That's when we started thinking about new festival concepts. That's when we, you know, started even just, I, I think personally, like promoting and producing the shows a lot better because we had the hours. Like we both gained like 50, 60 hours a, a week back, which is, you know, a lot. <laughs> and I'd like to finish by asking um, what advice you would offer to someone who was maybe thinking about starting their own party in London or elsewhere in 2019? I think the most important thing is grassroots. Like, don't come in, try and book a DJ that you think is going to sell tickets or that you've seen on lots of other people's bills. Yeah, don't come in and try and compete uh, with and like big compete. promoters straight away. You know, you kind of need to do it based around your own community. Yeah, yeah. And that's build definitely it. what we did. You've got, you have to launch it through your own through your own sort of community and be booking artists that you sort of know or they're from your locality and you know maybe do it started in your local club and sort of build something out organically have some good residents that people are just as happy to see those residents as, as they are anyone and, and they just come in there to engage with other people in their community and that's what they like about it that's what we started doing when we were young clubbers like we used to go to you know, fabric and places it was the same people we bump into every week like you know and I never saw them outside of fabric or, or or bagley's or places like that but you had a relationship with them through those clubs and i think and do it do it with a full-time job and do it on the side for at least a few years you know because it it was it was at least kind of three four years until we you know actually start and actually quit our jobs and did it full-time you know it's not it's not it's not something that you can i think you know most businesses unless you're raising loads of money and Doing a, doing a kind of proper entrepreneurial business raise, I think it you, you really need to look at it as something that you do on the, on the side as a kind of a as a kind of a vocational idea initially, and then and then see how it develops. I think yeah, you've just got to stay true to to what you want. We get asked that question a lot, like you know, the amount of times I get you know someone yelling in my ear in the DJ booth, like you know, like, how do you think I should you know. And how do you think I should start? What do you think I should do? What club do you think I should use? Like, who should I use for branding? Like, use your friends for everything. Like, you know, like engage in your natural pool of talent around you. And so everyone's committed to it. Like, that's what we did. I think that's what lots of our contemporaries have did that really affected. Their mate was doing the artwork. Their mate was DJing. Their other mate was running the door. That's what's great about it. I mean, I kind of miss those days sometimes of like having everyone. It was like a, a real collective energy. And I think, you know, worst case if it doesn't if it doesn't pay off or it doesn't it doesn't happen, and you do two or three years of great parties with your friends and you have a good time, and it doesn't lead to anything. But you're not putting all in your eggs in one basket and overanalyzing, thinking like I want to be a promoter, I'm going to put this, I'm going to go for this target market, and just you've got to feel your way out. There's a, there's a lot of like there's a lot of learning to be done on the journey to like. Um, to, to getting there and being and being like being able to pull off big shows with like big visions and and you've got to learn that by just like fucking up and and the best way to do that is with your friends around you really
We'll be right back. 